Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and thank you for joining us as we celebrate the beginning of our sixth year. I am thrilled to have Gary Paul Nepon, author of Agave Spirits, joining us to talk about the amazing plant, the agave. Gary is an agricultural ecologist and author of numerous books that focus on the biodiversity and cultural diversity in the Southwest. Gary is also a pioneer in the local food and heirloom seed-saving movements. Gary joins me from his home in Patagonia, Arizona. Gary, welcome to Nature Revisited. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. It is not often that I get guests from the American Southwest. So thank you for joining me to talk about your new book, Agave Spirits. Let's go back a bit to what brought you from Indiana to the American Southwest, to what some people call Planet Desert. Well, thank you, Stefan. I grew up in the Indiana Dunes on the shores of Lake Michigan, which of course isn't a true desert, but it does have prickly pear and a number of other plants that most people do identify with deserts. I grew up as the grandson of Arab refugees from the Ottoman War who landed on the shores of Lake Michigan and worked as fruit peddlers and grocery store deli operators. The wonderful thing is that they whetted my curiosity about the deserts of the Middle East enough that when I first had a chance to go to deserts in American Southwest and then to Mexico, I immediately felt at home in them and more intrigued than ever. And later in life, I began to visit my cousins in the Middle East, who, by the way, are bootleggers and distillers. And so there's sort of a line between deserts and distillation that runs through my whole life. So what are agaves? And when did you first realize that the agave plant, sometimes called the century plant, was so fascinating and important? Well, agaves are some of the most beautifully shaped, voluptuous, succulent plants in the deserts and tropics of the Americas. They look like mandelas. They're sword-shaped leaves that at first look like they're just in a circle around the base of the plant, but really they're in one of those perfect golden spirals like many mandelas are. In meditating on the shape of an agave, you have the same benefits of contemplative practice that you do with a mandela, a reduced blood pressure and cortisol levels and a heightened sense of calm and elation. But there are also signature plants 
of harsh environments, uh, not just true deserts, but the cliffs in tropical and subtropical climates throughout Mexico that show a certain kind of tenacity that I think we can all learn from as we go into this period of living in a hotter, drier world. So agaves are used to make mezcal. Can you describe the magic and sacred dimensions of mezcal and why is that personally so fascinating to you? That's a great question. Let me just help your listeners by reminding them that we'll be using the words mezcal, maguey, century plant, and agave interchangeably. Mezcal and maguey are used throughout the Spanish-speaking world. We typically think of mezcal just as a drink in the United States. The word comes from the Nahuatl language of the Aztec, and it just means roasted agave. So it's a combination of fire and plant matter that creates first a wonderful food and then can be fermented into a wonderful probiotic beverage that is sometimes called vino mezcal, or it can be fermented and then distilled into spirits that may also be called mezcal, tequila, raicilla, or bacanora, depending where the plants are grown and what the cultural tradition associated with them is. So mezcal is a multifaceted word. The distilled spirits that most Americans know as tequila, which is just simply a mezcal from one particular landscape in Mexico of one particular variety of agave. Can you describe some of its magic and its sacred dimensions? I love this question because it's what first fascinated me about agaves, and I knew that there was a lot of iconography in Mesoamerican and Desert American cultures about it. And it wasn't until later that I realized sacredness of that is largely hidden from most people who now drink mezcal and tequila that is so obvious to the people living in the places in Mexico where these spirits are produced that they just assume everyone else knows of that sacred dimension. And we now believe from archaeological evidence that small quantities, maybe a half cup to a cup of agave spirits, were distilled in Mexico long before Europeans and Filipinos arriving on the shores of Mexico introduced the Alambique stills from the Old World. But they were so precious that they were used for religious ceremonies in indigenous cultures and used sparingly. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of images of both the agave plant itself and the goddess of agaves, Mayawel, are so omnipresent in Mexico that most people growing up in the presence of these plants see those spiritual dimensions. So what are some of the traditions and folklore that are still alive today 
that you see, particularly in Mexico? Well, we have these overlaps between Catholic and Native indigenous practices that, again, there's no dualism for the people using them. They don't feel like they're being Catholic at the expense of being indigenous or vice versa. What may be shocking to many Americans is that when some indigenous people come into a church to pray or to celebrate the Day of the Dead or any other special ceremony, they often pour out from a bottle onto the toes of the saint some mezcal and sometimes light it with a match so that it flames for 10 or 15 seconds. And so a lot of the saints in southern Mexico have hot feet because they're being venerated by people as soon as they come into a church or a cathedral or a chapel with a little bit of mezcal. The older beverage that was made from agaves that isn't used in many places for distilled spirits anymore is called pulque, made from a very different practice and preparation than how most people make mezcal. And that remains the key beverage associated with these spiritual dimensions of agaves, one of the oldest beverages in North America. Some of their iconography also recognizes that at least three kinds of bats that visit agave flowers to carry its pollen to another plant for cross-pollination are also drinking fermented nectar. So how is a bottle of mezcal different from any other distilled liquor, let's say wheat, barley, or corn? Well, this is a wonderful theme to reflect upon. Most corn whiskey usually has only one variety of a corn in it, and the same thing with wheat or barley. Nearly all other distilled beverages have just one variety of one species of a grain or a potato or another tuber in them, sugarcane, for example, for rum. But agaves are at least 42 different species and hundreds of varieties that are used in mezcal. And sometimes there might be five to eight different species of agave roasted and then fermented together and distilled that end up in the same bottle. And that enriches the flavors incredibly, but it also has another hidden element to it. We can see the agaves that are roasted and fermented and put into a bottle, but we don't see the fermentation microbes, the yeasts and the bacteria that help transform that plant into something highly spiritual. With agaves, those 42 agave species are matching up with over 30 different yeasts and sometimes 70 to 80 different fermentation bacteria in the same fermentation vat. Why that matters is why mezcals are so much more complex in flavor and fragrance than any other distillate. It's like a lock and key sort of dance between the carbohydrates in each agave and the hidden fragrances and flavors in them that need a key like a particular yeast or bacteria to pull them out, bring them 
into the fermented and then the distilled liquid. But because we have that combination of different yeasts and bacteria, we end up with a rainbow of flavors and fragrances beyond what any gin or sake or Cointreau or grappa can ever provide. Can you share some of the distilling processes of agave that enhance the magic in the taste of mezcal? I think that's a wonderful dilemma that most of us never get to see the distillation of what we drink, let alone the fermentation or the selection of plants. And it's all three of those stages that add to the complexity of mezcals. There's also this fascinating remnant that probably goes back to pre-Columbian times, what's called play-oya pottery distillation, that after fermenting the roasted agaves in animal skins or clay pots or in wooden carved basins, the mash of that is put in a combination of two clay pots over a fire and serves as a condenser as the fire underneath the lower pot begins to boil and go up as steam, and then it hits a condenser which is cooled with water so that the steam condenses into a liquid. Why that's so rich in terms of how it contributes to flavor is that you're picking up the taste of the clay, the earth itself, where the pottery was made. And you're slow cooking it so that it has time to release all these fragrances that then become the flavors that we taste in a bottle. On top of that, many people in Puebla and Oaxaca hang below that condenser pot, the top clay pot, a bag in cheesecloth of different herbs and sometimes even animal parts like chicken or turkey breast or iguana tails or rattlesnake rattles. And so that as the steam passes through that mixture, you're bringing in a whole set of other flavors and fragrances that you would never get if you used as an industrial still. So in your book, you say that mezcals have a taste of place. Why is it important that not only humans, but mezcals have a wild side to them? I love where you're going with with this question. You know, most alcohol has become placeless. Wines have not. We know the concept expressed with the French word terroir that is talking about the natural and cultural elements that give the taste of a particular place like uh, Bordeaux, for example, or Champagne, that the soil there, the soil microbes, flavor of the water, all those things contribute to the taste of place, the terroir. Mescals are so place-specific that they remind us of our own connection to a place wherever we live or wherever we were born in sort of a dreamy way that trigger your imagination and your flexion about 
where flavor comes from in the world. And so each village in Oaxaca or Puebla has a different soil type, a, a different kind of water, the agave plant. Some of them grow 30 to 40 years before they're harvested to make mezcal. In a world that's become placeless and so globalized, artisanal mezcals remind us that we really can't do without a sense of place in the world. So most people probably don't think that distilled spirits truly have a spiritual dimension or that the places that some of them come from are truly sacred places. How would you respond to that? I think that we've dissociated our food and beverages from place and forget that all around us are places that were considered sacred, not just by indigenous people, but by Catholic or Buddhist or Jewish peasants that have lived in that place for hundreds or thousands of years. In Oaxaca, sometimes mezcaleros, before they're ready to distill, run up to the highest mountain that's a sacred mountain over the village, make a prayer, leave an offering, and then take wild cherries, wild apples, or wild herbs, and bring those back down off the mountain, do another prayer, put them in the sack that then goes below the condenser. And after the mezcal is made, those remains of the apples and the turkey breasts and the cherries are then taken up and planted on top of the mountain under the trees, and a prayer is offered again. So that prayerfulness associated with the Gavi spirits is out of sight and out of mind of most drinkers in Europe or North America. So in the book, you say, quote, agaves are ready to soar into new roles that could potentially be of great service in this time of rapid climate change. Can you expand on that? Part of my research the last 15 years is how we can use the desert adaptations that native plants and indigenous cultures have developed over centuries or millennia to guide us into the hotter, drier world that most Americans will experience as our planet becomes planet desert due to climate change. Desert conditions are not just in the true deserts of the Chihuahuan Desert, Sonoran Desert, and Great Basin Desert. Desert conditions are reaching back into Oklahoma and Arkansas and, and up into Idaho, parts of California and Nevada. And so what I'm saying is that we need to look at analogs in regions and places that have already been on the road to adapting to hotter, drier conditions and metaphorically learn from them. It's not that I want to take agaves from Oaxaca and plant them in my yard, but by thinking like an agave and thinking like an agave farmer in Oaxaca or in the Tehuacan Valley or of Puebla, which is even more a desert than Oaxaca, we can find a pathway to a water-conserving, carbon-sequestering, 
adapted agriculture that will last far longer than the corn and soybean agriculture that plagues much of North America that will not last. So how have women played a part in the culture of agave spirits, and how is that changing? Well, it's changing for the better in the sense that more women are involved in every single role in the mezcal supply chain as artists and distillers and farmers as advertisers and marketers. Women in many of the indigenous cultures that have had mezcal for a long time know mezcal from birth. I have a friend, and she remembers growing up in her grandparents' distillery where she had a rope swing that swung out over the canyon where they got their water from. When she got tired, her parents would put her in the wooden fermentation vat, put a little blanket around her and put a mosquito net over her, and she would sleep where the mezcal is fermented. When she got a cough, her mother would give her a cough syrup that was made with an herbal infusion based in mezcal, even when she was four or five. And if she had a rash on her skin, they would fill up the fermentation vat with enough mezcal to bathe her in it. So every part of her life through her college degree brought her back to the importance of mezcal, not only to her family, but to her community. And now she's organized one of the first fair trade mezcal co-ops in Mexico. So there's real innovation going on by the women who both taste the mezcal perhaps differently than the men, organize the social work around the distillery in a special way, and have great communication skills as proponents of mezcal. And so the macho image that tequila has associated with it is rapidly falling away. They're making it more feminine and more inclusive. We've been talking about the diversity and the culture of this wonderful plant and the contribution that it makes. But what are some of the downsides to its story, such as hornaleros, field workers, small distilleries? Part of this story of people who are really struggling. Sadly, most of the states where mezcal is still made are among the poorest in Mexico. Most grinding poverty and access to health care and other resources. The pay scale between what those day workers in large mezcal and tequila plantations get versus the CEOs of non-Mexican-owned multinational corporations is largest disparity in pay between an executive and a field worker that we know of of any industry in the world. And one problem contributing to the poverty is that any bottle of mezcal sold in Mexico has two taxes or tariffs on it, one called the IVA and the other one called the EPS. And that takes 59 to 62 percent 
of the total value of the bottle in the retail store and takes it away from the mescaleros and gives it to the government. So we proposed to people involved in the Mexican government that for the artisanal mezcals of less than, say, a thousand gallons a year, which comprises a very large proportion of all the distilleries in Mexico, that it be considered an artisanal craft of indigenous origin and that those taxes be waived so that people's income would almost triple. We can see that the agave spirit industry needs to change. How can consumers help make those changes happen? That's the wonderful thing about the Mexican government's establishment of the regulatory commissions for mezcal, tequila, Icia, Bacanora, and some other distilled spirits. Any person who is a distributor, drinker, or retailer in the world, not just in Mexico, has a place at the table when new rulings are proposed. Coalitions of farmers and bartenders and scientists of agaves have kept three or four major legal changes and policy changes from occurring by unanimous dissent of changes that would further marginalize the small mezcal makers and favor the big industry. So it's already been proven that the consumers and bartenders and farmers' voices can change the mezcal industry for the better. Speaking of bartenders, what is the role of the bartender in this story? Well, I love this part of the research. I did have a couple uncles that were bartenders or bar and restaurant owners. I don't think I ever gave them the credit that they're due for being the front line to the consumer on what they should drink and what they should not. And so many people come into a mezcal bar and see 50 kinds of mezcal and tequila on the back bar and ask the bartender, which of those should I drink, which is the most flavorful? And so bartenders are the front line in educating consumers on what they should perhaps avoid and what they should sample. And they do it without overwhelming people with negative messages. They give them different choices and talk about them. The wonderful thing is that most mezcals have an enormous amount of information on the bottle that can help guide consumers. So what would you say to someone like myself from New England, say, about what they are missing when it comes to agave and mezcal spirits? Well, you're missing a taste of North America if you don't try some of these. The three greatest beverages that North America has offered to the world are the mezcals and tequila, the hard ciders that, of course, came from Europe but then quickly became adopted in New England and, and the upper Midwest and the South, and corn whiskey. You had the corn from the New World and the whiskey making from the Old World. 
in ways, all of these are mestizo or hybrid beverages. To me, mezcal is the jazz of the beverage world. It's very eclectic, very hybrid, but you can still see its indigenous roots. What is the biggest threat to the agave plant, and what does its future look like? I think the biggest threat to all the mezcals and 100% agave spirits is some of the government agencies promoting it to be more like tequila, that it should become more industrialized, that it should be monocultural plantations in the field, big stainless steel fermentation vats, and highly technical instruments like the diffuser that allows immature agaves to have the sugars be blasted out of them into a a sugary goop that is then fermented rather than waiting for the plant to mature to have all the flavors and fragrances that we've just been talking about. To me, the devil is in the details, and that's that it's hidden from sight with many tequilas that they're not using traditional techniques. They're using these big batch diffusers. And so we need to de-industrialize the industry rather than further industrializing it. Distilleries need to keep their integrity. Base mezcals in Oaxaca have already gone down the road of tequila. Some of the Bacanoras have in Sonora. And we don't want to see more of that. We want to see the return to tradition because that's using the plant for its greatest advantages. So we need to take the plant's greatest and most unique values and preserve them and build a sustainable industry around that. And we can do that conservation of water, energy via fuel, and agaves, because there are already models out there of people doing it right. As a person who lives in the borderlands, I'm not proposing things that the mezcal makers themselves have not proposed. I'm trying to amplify their voices by giving them and their words access to people who've never met a mezcalero or maestra mezcalera themselves. I think that the adventure of visiting mezcal-making families in eight states over the last four years has given me hope that there's an underpinning of a kind of mixed crop agriculture that conserves water, brings carbon back into the soil. And what we call it is a slow agriculture that produces slow foods and beverages that we can eat and drink without regret. The pleasure that people get from drinking a good mezcal or eating the roasted mezcal heart is what the slow food movement is all about internationally and within our own country and within Mexico. And we need to savor that kind of beverage processing traditions because they're going to give us a way into the future that industrialized systems cannot.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gary Nippon and that you will explore some of the other books that he has written, which you can learn more about on his website, GaryNippon.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments on this or any other episode, please email me at NordenPro at gmail.com. N-O-O-R-D-E-N-P-R-O at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, NordenProductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Tim Buckley, Buzz and Fly. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>